You're listening to a sermon by Kevin Dane, Associate Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. It's uh, uh, really a privilege and a joy for me to, to be here this morning to be able to open up God's Word with you. Uh, we're going to continue on in our sermon series in the book of First Peter. Today we're going to look at just two verses from chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So I would encourage you to open up your Bibles, uh, your apps, uh, or your worship folders where it's been printed for you as well and take a look at those verses. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word out of respect for the Lord who's speaking to us this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, as we uh, focus on your word to us from this book, we ask, and I ask, that you would uh, be present through your Holy Spirit, applying your word to our hearts and to our minds, that you would conform us more to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. Well, have you, um, I'm wondering, have you seen any of those progressive insurance ads that feature Dr. Rick? You know, he's the guy who helps first-time homebuyers avoid turning into their parents. Have you guys seen those? Uh, it, the ads work because it really pokes fun of, of some very real generational differences. And I, I especially like it when he's dealing with technology. So if you, maybe you've seen this, or if you haven't, there's one where he's got a group of these first-time homebuyers turning into their parents, gathered around a, a computer, and, and Dr. Rick says, okay, now we're going to open up a PDF. Who wants to go first? And everybody steps back, like, oh, that's not me, right? That's tricky tech. Or uh, he uh, begins a seminar, and he says, if you're, if, he says, if you printed out a map to get here today, you're in the right place. Uh, right? Um, and I like the one where there's a guy in the audience who asks a question. He says, hey, I, I used the Progressive app to compare rates. Was I hashtagging? Um, so, again, tech differences, generational differences. Well, I, br- I bring that up uh, because in the short passage that we just read today, um, Peter is urging us. He's urging you and he's urging me to become influencers. I think anyone in this room, 25 or under, totally knows what I'm talking about. Um, But those of us who are older might not be sure what an influencer is. Uh, I did a little deep dive. I mean, I knew what an influencer was, but I did a little deep dive and discovered there are actually lots of categories of influencers. But generally, we're talking about a social media influencer. Someone who has a big following on social media. And because of that, because you have a big following, because people know them and trust them, they can influence the buying decisions of their audience. Well, as you would imagine, the, the, uh, the highest paid 
In, they get paid for this, by the way. So the highest paid influencers are celebrities and sports stars. In fact, the highest paid influencer is the soccer star Ronaldo. Number two is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And, and they each have somewhere between 200 and 300 million people who follow them on social media. Because people follow them on social media, social media pays them every time they post something on social media to the tune of about a million and a half dollars a post. And now we just hit the generational divide. Because kids are like, yeah, totally, that's what I want to do. And adults are like, seriously, you can make money doing that? Like, that's ridiculous, right? Um, and, and, and so that's, that's what an influencer is. Uh, uh, more realistically, a micro-influencer, someone who's trying to, to do this on their own, who's not well-known, might make 5000 to $10,000 a year, which is still nice, but it's not the same. Well, Peter is calling you and me to be influencers, but not necessarily social media influencers. Which, I mean, you might be, and that's okay, but that's not what he's calling us to. He's actually calling us to something that's very much the opposite of that. A social media influencer is focused on building their brand, curating their image online. But what Peter is calling us to do is to be people who are focused on building God's brand, who are building God's reputation, and not our own. And in the two verses that we just read, Peter gives us both the motive for being an intentional influencer, and he gives us really the method for doing so. And in that way, this, this little passage functions sort of like a hinge. Because when we talk about the motive, he's pointing back to everything that we read about in the opening chapters of this book. And when we talk about the method, he's actually pointing ahead to everything that's going to follow uh, in the rest of the book. So we're going to look at the motive, and we're going to look at the method. Those are sort of the two poles that, that we're going to reflect on. So the motive. Why would we want to spend our time and energy uh, trying to build God's reputation rather than our own? Well, it really starts with, with, the, opening, with the opening word, beloved. Beloved, Peter says. And this is a loaded, it's a loaded phrase. It's a, and it's a one that Peter likes. He uses it a lot in his second letter. And he's speaking, of course, of his love, his love for the audience, the people he's writing to. But it's more than that. He's also reminding them of the great love that God has for them in Jesus Christ. And, and that it follows right on the heels. You know, we, we picked up in verse 11, but it follows right on this marvelous passage that we reflected on last week where Peter is drawing from the book of Hosea and he, he says to his audience, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is reminding his audience and you and me that we are loved by God, that once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Right? It's the gospel. And I, I, what I worry about and for myself and for you is that, that we're so familiar with this that we, kind of, that we lose the power of what Peter's trying to communicate to us. Um, I, I was blessed and fortunate to, to be involved in leading youth ministry for 10 years back in Wisconsin. I think just about every one of the students, they believe the gospel, but when you ask them about it, they would say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, he's my best friend, he's always there for me. And that was sort of their summary of, of the gospel, which is fair and it's good, but they said it like that. 
which w- m- means that they've, that they've become so comfortable and it's become so common that we've lost the power of it. So I'm going to endeavor to, to, to help us capture a little bit of the power today. Um, so I would ask you to join me in a little bit of a thought experiment right now. Uh, if you're in school, this totally, you know, you'll get the, the context. If you're out of school, I want you to think back to when you were in school, whether it's elementary, middle, high school, or, or college. But I want you, first of all, to think about a time in your school career when you experienced something where you felt the most appreciated, the most valued, you know, the most loved. Just one of those times where you're just like, oh, this feels so, so good. People really like me. And I don't know what that would be for you. Maybe you won a sporting event or you were in a school play and, and the, the audience was applauding and it just felt so good. Or maybe it was just someone telling you that, 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 you're their, that they're your friend, that they like you, right? But think about that time and that feeling in particular where you just felt very, very accepted and valued, all right? So that's thought experiment number one. And hold that in your thought. Now I want you at the same time to think about somebody during your school years that you couldn't stand, the person maybe who, who was a bully to you, who picked on you, who belittled you, who made your life difficult. Somebody who was not a friend. And if you had to categorize them, you might say even they were your enemy. Now I want to ask you, as you think about that person, would you give up everything? Would you even give up that first experience so that the person that you can't stand could experience that kind of love and acceptance? Would you trade all that you had, that, that sort of glory, so that they could have it instead? And if, if you cringe at that, then we're getting in just the, the smallest little human inkling of what Jesus did for you and me. Because Peter's made the point. We were God's enemies. We were not his people. And that's that whole story of Hosea, which Pastor Ted brought home so well last week. Our sins have separated us from God. We are his enemies. And yet Jesus, God in the flesh, willingly gave up glory to come to earth and to, to do what? To, to, to receive punishment for my sin and your sin so that we could experience being loved and accepted by God. That's what it means when he says, you were once not a people, now you are the people of God. And friends, that's what beloved means. That's what the weight of that little word. You're loved by God because of what Christ has done. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's a beautiful, powerful image. And that helps us to get our head around our motive. Now we're part of God's family. Because we're part of His family. Our home is His home. Um, And that's why Peter uses the two terms that I'm going to draw your attention to next, where he calls you and me sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. So what's our motive? First, we're beloved. What is also our motive? That we are sojourners and exiles. Now he used the term exiles in chapter 1, and now he links it with sojourners. And putting the two together really echo back to the book of Genesis, where Abraham calls himself a sojourner and exile. The context of that phrase is that Abraham's trying to buy a burial plot there in the promised land. And he tells the residents of that, I am just a sojourner and an exile here. Now those, those words, sojourner and exile, can be translated something to, akin to uh, like foreigners and visitors. 
pilgrims and, and visitors. And so I, we want to think about Abraham, right? There he was in the land God promised to him. He's, and he's there and he's buying a plot of land. And he says, I am but a sojourner and an, and a, and an exile. Why? Because he knows that, that that plot of land wasn't his ultimate home. That in the, in the grand scheme of things, he was passing through on his way to his heavenly home. The author of Hebrews tells us that and says that Abraham was looking forward to a city that had foundations. It wasn't transitory. Whose designer and builder is God. And for you and me, beloved by God, we are but sojourners and exiles. We are passing through on our way to our heavenly home. We are currently far from home, but we are not far from God. And so that status as, the, as these visitors here is, is part of what compels us, what gives us a motive to tell people about Jesus. We want them to know the amazing love that God has for them in Christ. So that constitutes our motive to be influencers for the name of Jesus. But what about the method? Well, if that's what we're supposed to do, how are we supposed to do this? And this comes in when Peter says to us that he urges us, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And here he's looking ahead to what follows, and in verse 12 as well. Because the rest of the book he's really going to put detail, gives examples of what, what this looks like. But here he says... Uh, he urges us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. You could, and then he goes on to say, I'm sorry, to, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? So abstain, the motive, the, we saw the motive, now the method. Abstain from evil, maintain good lives, that people will see Jesus. Abstain, maintain. And, and so looking ahead. So abstain. And he says, I urge you to abstain from, from them. I think the word urge is, I mean, it's the right word for the translation. But in our cultural context, we've, we've kind of lost the, the power of that, right? Because we have just spent a, a long season hearing uh, politicians and, and public health officials urging us to socially distance, urging us to wear our mask is, our masks, and we're, and we're sort of, you know, we're like done with it. <laughs> And, and urge has kind of lost its, its power to us. So think, think Peter here is saying, I strongly exhort you. I strongly exhort you to, to, to abstain from the passions uh, of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Right? And that's what we're supposed to wage war against, or to be aware of, to abstain from. Passions of the flesh. So he's exhorting us to, to abstain from passions of the flesh. And here again, it's so easy for us to just sort of disengage from the text. Because when, I don't know about you, but when I hear passions of the flesh, uh, I think, oh, well this is for somebody who's living a soap opera kind of life. Or somebody who's living a Game of Thrones kind of life. And that ain't me, so this doesn't pertain to me. right? That's, that's what I hear. And when we read on, in chapter 4, Peter uses a similar phrase, human passions... And he links it to, and this is from, you know, he links it to living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, extreme promiscuity, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, and debauchery. And again, I think it's pretty easy for most of us to hear that listing of, that ain't me, 
And so we disengage again and go, oh, I, there's no, I have nothing to abstain from because those things, they're not in my, my life. Um, but, but, Peter says that these passions of the flesh war against our soul. And the use of that word and that metaphor for war means we've got to stand up, friends, and take notice. These things are waging war against our souls, even now. And we know, again, historically, war. Like if our country goes to war, we're involved, whether we like it or not. It impacts our lives, whether we like it or not. And that's true here. These passions are waging war against my soul and war against your soul, and we need to stand up and pay attention because we can't avoid it. And war by its nature is destructive. And Peter says, we are waging war against sin. And sin is waging war against us. Now I know sin is a loaded term. And for the sake of time, let me just sum it up, I think, this way. It isn't, it isn't necessarily what comes to mind when you hear the word passions of the flesh, although it certainly includes all of those things. But it is really anything that pulls us away from loving God and from loving others. And as we read on in 1 Peter and he details some of this, that's precisely what he's going to show us. Right? And so anything that pulls you and me away from loving God and loving others, those things, they're waging war against our soul. So what does it look like really in our life? I think it looks more like self-indulgent, self-protective, and self-comforting behaviors because the focus is self, not God or others. It's the stuff that comes out of our hearts when we're hungry when we're angry, when we're lonely, and when we are tired, right? When, when we're in those modes, what is it that we're craving? If we're not running to God, we're running to something else. And that's something else that's pulling us away from the Lord. It's what we crave, what we go to when we feel, when we're overwhelmed, when we're stressed, when we're depressed, when, we, when we're feeling neglected, when we're overlooked, when we're underappreciated. Where do you go? What do you run to? Where do you seek comfort? If it's not the Lord, be on guard. It may be warring against your soul. Because friends, we must, must, must realize that sin is a malignant cancer. And if it's left unchecked, it will destroy us. And it will harm those around us. So Peter's calling us, take note, pay attention, fight against it. Fight the fight of spiritual warfare. So there we are, right? I've said it. I got it out on the table. Spiritual warfare and sin, things we don't like to think about, things we don't like to talk about. And again, I think it's easy for us to avoid this and, and kind of go towards a couple different poles uh, when we think about fighting this kind of fight. I want to, I want to get to, to that through, by telling you a couple of stories from a good friend of mine. My friend John back in Wisconsin. Uh, wonderful Christian man, uh, married with kids, died young. Uh, he's with the Lord now. John was humorous, always had a big smile, always had a good joke, always told good stories. And he loved to tell stories about his days growing up in Roman Catholic school. And two of those stories have stuck with me. Now the first one is this. So when John was just in elementary school at Roman Catholic school, uh, the teacher would take the class upstairs to, to, the, to, to the church area, to the back, to the confessional, 
And they would have every kid go in and confess their sins to the priest. Um, some of you grew up Roman Catholic, so you know this. Many of you have seen this. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you've probably seen, you've observed it, saw it on TV, right? Where the person goes into that box, and they sit down, and they say, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And they can't see the priest, and they tell him uh, what their sins are. Well, imagine being a grade schooler, right? You go up, and you're all in line, and you're all taking turns in the box, and you can hear each other, Right? <laughs> And so John did not want to tell them what he was really struggling with, but he'd sit there and it's like, what? She's doing what? You know, and you hear this. And, but, but he knew he had to say something. So for his entire elementary school career, every time he had to go up and go and make confession, John confessed to the exact same sin. Every time he would get into the box and say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Over the last week, I was mean to old people. That was his sin. I was mean to old people. It wasn't really what he was sin, what he had done, but he, he had to confess something of, of mild magnitude, uh, something that wouldn't embarrass him in front of his friends. Um, why do I share that story with you? Because John didn't really, at that point in his life, he wasn't taking sin seriously. Like he knew he knew about it. He acknowledged it. He knew he needed to confess something. But it's kind of like you and me going, you know, like uh, I don't know. I'm the sinful person. Well, it's true, but that doesn't take sin seriously. Sometimes we treat sin lightly, like John did, with this, you know, just sort of treating it lightly, not seriously thinking about it or thinking about the fight. Well, there's another story that John liked to tell also about growing up uh, and going to Roman Catholic school. And this was in Wisconsin. And in, the, in January or February, as cold and flu season would start up, and temperatures were usually very cold, you know, below freezing, uh, he said the priest would come around to their classroom, and he would have a little sliver of wood purported to be from the cross of Jesus. And he would touch every, kid, every child's throat with that little piece of wood. The, now, the Roman Catholic teaching on that is that their throat was blessed, and that would keep them from getting sick. I don't happen to believe that, and we as a denomination don't believe that, but this is what John experienced. So as a grade school young boy, in the middle of winter, having had this happen, this blessing, he and all of his buddies would charge out onto the playground without any winter coats, because, hey, nothing could happen to them. <laughs> and sometimes, friends, we can treat grace too broadly, just like that, and feel like I'm covered, nothing can happen to me. And how does that play out in our lives? Well, I don't know. I think sometimes maybe we're willing to get a little too close to sin, right? We want to see how far it is, how, how close can I get to the edge without actually falling off? Can I experience this? I know God doesn't like it, but boy, it feels good. It's so exciting. I want to get close to the edge without falling off begin to take grace broadly. But when we do that, those little sins can lead to big sins. You know, maybe it's flirting in the office. Maybe it's disobeying mom and dad. I don't, I don't know what it is. But friends, when we yield to temptation, harm will come. The wages of sin is death. Now, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. But sin is all about death. Sin is all about destruction. And when we play around with it, we introduce those principles of death and destruction into whatever it is, into our lives, into our relationships, into the lives of other people. It's just inescapable. Peter says in 2 Peter, we end up being unfruitful and ineffective when we play around with this stuff. 
What I'm trying to say and what Peter's trying to wake us up to is the fact that, friends, there are real-world consequences when we play around with sin. Has the penalty been paid? Absolutely. These sins cannot separate us from God's love that he has for us in Christ. But there are still consequences. There are still consequences. And so we must, friends, we must be aware of the fact that we are at war. And we must fight against it. Peter's urging us, exhorting us to fight against it. So abstain. Abstain from those passions of the flesh. And then he goes on to tell us to maintain. To keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So keep your conduct honorable. So this is part of how we live this out, right? Keep your conduct honorable. This is what he's telling us. He says, look, when you live according to Christian values, your values are not always of this world. And when you do that, some people will malign you. Some will make fun of you. Some will harm you. Peter was put to death for his faith. But it's just a reality. We live according, we're visitors, right? So we we live according to the culture of God, not the culture that we're in. That's what drives us. And people are going to notice it. And sometimes they're going to malign us. And so what does it mean in real world time? Right? And I know, I know this has happened to, to some of you, maybe many of you. Right? You may end up missing a job opportunity. Because you chose to be honest when the other candidates chose to be dishonest. You might miss out on the biggest sale of your career. Again, because you chose to be honest and your client wanted you to be dishonest. You might miss out on promotions because you're seen as a goody-goody uh, and, and not somebody that's going to fit in with, with, the, with the C-suite kind of people, right? These are the realities uh, when we follow Jesus. These are the people who uh, may malign us, speak against us. Your neighbors may wonder why you go to church on Sunday mornings rather than indulge in me time. The cashier at the store might be amazed and wonder why you're being so honest. Why are you coming back to tell me that we undercharged you? Why are you trying to give me more money? Why don't you just you know, ignore it and keep it, right? They may wonder, your colleagues may wonder why you prioritize family time over going out and drinking with the boss after work. Or in general, the people might wonder why you just simply aren't even, why aren't you embarrassed to be associated with Jesus, right? And people may malign you. That's what this can look like for us. But, Peter says, but some people will take notice. They'll take notice of your changed life. And that, that is going to be one piece of their coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And in, in a little later in chapter 3, he, he says we need to be prepared. After he lists all these examples of, of what this kind of living looks like. He says, so be prepared because they're going to ask you why you have hope. What is the hope that you have within you? They're going to see it and they're going to ask you. And that gives us opportunity to share the gospel with them. Um, and when Jesus returns, and that's what I understand him to mean when he talks about the day of visitation, that's when Christ comes again. He says some people are going to glorify God. These are not the forced... There's 61 times in Scripture it talks about people glorifying God when Christ comes again. Never once does that refer to them being forced or compelled to acknowledge Him as Lord. These are people glorifying God because they're saved, because of what Christ has done for them. 
So when you look at this passage, Peter's saying when you live your life this way, it's going to be one link in the chain. It's going to be part of them coming to faith and they're going to glorify God with you when Jesus comes again. Right? So, it, so in real time, this plays out in these ways where people come to you. They've noticed your changed life. Some of them may have even mocked you or made fun of you. But some of them will come to you. And that's when they have those conversations, right? When you're uh, at the lunchroom. I experienced this in the lunchroom at, at, at work when I was in the marketplace. And, and one of the guys comes up to me and says, Hey, you're a religious guy. What do you think about this? Right? He had a problem in his life. That's an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Or it's the neighbor who invites you over, and this Kathy experienced this. A neighbor had her over for coffee and looked at her in the eye and said, you have something in your life that I don't have, and I've got to know what it is. Right? She might as well have said, what must I do to be saved? Because that's what she meant. Right? But what was the, why did that conversation happen? I, we just lived our life, and she observed something different. And it led her to ask, and that led to the sharing of the gospel. See, that's the kind of influencer that Peter is calling you and me to be. When we fight against sin and live for God's glory rather than our own, people will notice. And some of them will end up following Jesus. So let, so let me end by sharing with you a story about a, a wonderful godly woman that Kath and I have the privilege of knowing. Her name is Vi. Vi is 94 years old. She lives in Wisconsin. Excuse me. Uh, we first met Vi and her husband, Lee, at, at the church we were attending in Wisconsin uh, a number of years ago. I don't even know how many. Probably 30. And so we, they were there in church on Sunday, and, and my wife, Kathy, goes over to greet them, and we find out her name is Vi. His name is Lee. My wife's really good at remembering names. She's a teacher. So she does one of those memory tricks and goes, oh, Lee Vi, like the genes. This is great. I got it. And the very next Sunday, she goes right up to Lee and says, Hey, Gene, nice to see you. Um, so at, at, uh, at, at the time, we didn't know the backstory, And of course, we didn't know the rest of the story. So let me, let me give you the backstory. So um, Vi and Lee married you know, in their early 20s. She was a Christian, um, but Lee was not. And uh, she thought she could change him. So... They went ahead, she married him. Um, Lee drank a lot and he gambled a lot. And um, shortly after marriage, he reformed his behavior for a while. They had four kids, but after the kids left the home, um, he went back to his behaviors and he became verbally abusive to Vi, especially with regard to her faith. Um, And then after some time, he acquiesced and said, all right, I'll go to church. And that's when we met them. Uh, he went to church for a season, but it didn't stick. And after his season at church, he became even meaner, even angrier. He would malign her more and belittle her more. Uh, and somewhere, and Catherine, I can't remember exactly, but somewhere when Lee was in his late 70s or early 80s, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And Vi uh, cared for him beautifully. Just beautifully. And on a good Friday, uh, he, he asked her why she was caring for him in such a loving way when he was, had been and was so mean to her. And she told him, it's all because of Jesus. They had that conversation. And he asked for forgiveness and he asked Jesus into his life. And on that good Friday evening, he, he died and went to be with the Lord. 
Vi was an influencer. She endured years, years of at least verbal abuse. A difficult life with a difficult man. And she has said since he passed that she would do it all over again if that's what it took for him to know Jesus. That's the kind of influencer that Peter is calling you and me to be. Not a superstar with 300 million followers, but a person who is following Jesus and quietly showing love to others. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I just want to end maybe with one, one practical suggestion. So I, I want to live like that. <laughs> um, but I get so pulled, right? The passions of the flesh, they war, war against the soul. And I know I'm not the only person in this room who feels that pull. And I, I, will, I will fall into selfishness, self-comfort, self-defense, easily. In those moments, I'm not living for God or for others. I'm living for me. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, Peter will give us very concrete examples as we go through the book. But I, I want to just end and encourage you this way. Think about that, that uh, sojourners and exiles, right? Foreigners and visitors, we're passing, we're passing through. This world is not our, our home. Our home is with our Heavenly Father. We're passing through. You know, if you've ever had the privilege of going on a short-term mission trip, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, I hope you will, um, you know that when you are on that mission trip, you live differently, right? You live on purpose. You're like, I'm here. I'm here to tell people about Jesus. And man, you wake up, that's your focus. You have lunch, that's your focus. You have dinner, that's your focus. You go to bed, that's your focus. It's your focus, your focus, your focus. And you think to yourself at the end, boy, why do I live so differently now? I wish I could do that at home. And then we get back into life and routine and, and it kind of that, that passion drifts away. I would suggest to you to think about every day being on a mission. We are, by definition, short-term missionaries. We're here but for a little while. We are visitors. And we are beloved by God. And we are here to tell people and show them that love. So maybe if we could wake up every day and just say, Jesus, I'm a short-term missionary. Help me. (laughs) Help me to show people who you are. Maybe that's one way we can become the kind of influencers Peter is calling us to be. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's take a few minutes to think about this text, this beautiful, marvelous, challenging text from Peter, um, and pray about it. Um, And I'll close us in a time of corporate prayer. Lord, we just read your word. You call us beloved. You urge us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. You urge us to keep our conduct among unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify you on the day when Christ returns. Father, we want to do that. 
We want to be short-term missionaries every day of our life. But we struggle because we're at war. So, Father, our prayer is simply this. Be strong for us where we are weak. Help us to live for your glory rather than your own. And may you be made famous here in North County, throughout the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Kevin Dane, Associate Pastor of New Life Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.